Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. Another week, another round of hearings and questions about the Minlars project. One hot topic this week focused on money for a call center to help customers with license tab and vehicle title questions. Last month, lawmakers approved $10 million in emergency funding so work can continue fixing the Minlars system, but they specifically denied approval of funding for a Minlars call center. So the Department of Public Safety found the money elsewhere. Am I reading the, the bill wrong? Republican lawmakers appeared angry and frustrated by a decision to take money meant for highway construction and use it to hire people to work at a Minlars call center. I will do everything here in the legislature to stop you get, from getting these funds because this is an inappropriate use of highway purpose dollars. The decision was made by Mona Doman, the Commissioner of Public Safety, who was also in charge of the Driver and Vehicle Services Office where the call center is located. The money came from a highway user account that is funded with gas tax dollars and usually used for highway construction. I assume that you are relying on somebody within the TPS that has advised you that in their opinion, the transfer of the money from HUTDF to hire people to answer the telephone falls within the constitutional definition of highway purposes. Is that a fair statement? Mr. Chair, the decision um, and, and interpretation and analysis was done by a number of people and we essentially came to a joint decision that it was an appropriate use. DPS is using $1.3 million to hire 26 call center workers. Commissioner Doman says the decision was made after the legislature denied new funding for the call center. We had hoped that we would be appropriated um, money out of the emergency uh, $10 million ask, and that didn't happen, and so we made a decision to use those funds. Public safety and Minlar's officials say they needed to do something to respond to customers more quickly. Right now, nearly three-fourths of the hundreds of thousands of calls are met with a busy signal, and it takes up to 12 days to respond to emails. Governor Dayton blasted Republicans this week for what he called grandstanding on the call center funding. I think some of them want to just keep it as bad as possible for as long as possible. They get to have they had over 20 hearings. They get to pound the table and, and bash it around. And, you know, they don't have a, a solution. That's why they won't let us answer the phones. You know, the more and more people get turned away without answers to their questions and just think, uh, you know, that we're totally indifferent to their situation. The, the, the worse it looks for us, and the better it looks for them. And in somewhat of a surprise, the former state worker who oversaw the rollout of Menlars showed up at a House committee hearing to defend himself. Paul Meekin was fired after an investigation largely blamed him for the problems with the system. I disagree with the premise of this investigation and the allegations against me. There must be a full analysis of Minlars so that we can learn what worked and what didn't to better improve how state government delivers IT systems. Investigative reports like Everett and Vanderweels that are conducted with an eye toward examining just one person's performance of a multi-year, multi-agency, multi-business, multi-million dollar IT project is so fundamentally misguided. Meanwhile, Governor Dayton is still hoping for another $33 million to fully fix the Minlars system. And the problems for the Minnesota IT office keep growing this legislative session.
Now the agency's billing practices are coming under fire after a survey of some state agencies. As Jay Coles shows us, Minute is being accused of overbilling state agencies or billing them for services they didn't even receive. The survey asked eight simple questions about Minute's billing and customer service. Senator Julie Rosen tells me she was surprised by the responses. We found billings that were inconsistent. They were wrong. They were late. The invoices were consistently off. One board told Senator Rosen, quote, Minute overpaid one of our vendors by approximately $30,000. And when the money was refunded to the board, quote, the check sat in our safe in our offices for three months because Minute staff apparently did not know how to process the refund. Another board says, quote, the bill is incorrect every month, and we challenge our bill every month and request they make corrections. And yet another says, quote, the invoices are not correct, and we have to spend time to try to locate the errors, communicate the errors, and have Minute correct the invoices. There was a general lack of communication over and over and over again in the replies, and very basically poor customer service. Rosen says she is now asking six of the largest state agencies the same questions to see if these problems extend into other areas of state government. And that's what we're trying to get to, it is efficient government, and this obviously Obviously, has been a huge loophole. I am very troubled by some of the things that we had to find out. Jay Coles, 5 Eyewitness News. Minute says it is reviewing the information that's been collected. They plan to reach out to each of those boards and commissions to see what they can do to fix any issues that still might exist. House Republicans released their budget targets for the remainder of the legislative session, and it could set up another budget showdown with Governor Dayton. House Republicans want to put $107 million toward tax reform and $101 million to fixing roads and bridges. They're also calling for just over $30 million for K-12 education, including school safety improvements. And they want to cut about $7 million from state government, something Governor Dayton opposes. Governor Dayton is calling for the repeal of tax breaks that were passed last year on some tobacco products, business property, and wealthy estates. Minnesota Senate Republicans support several bills aimed at making the cost of health care more transparent. They're considering four bills that require health care providers to let patients know how much services will cost. One bill requires clinics to post the cost of their 25 most commonly billed services. Another would require good faith estimates of what a patient will have to pay for a visit. We don't have a patient-centered free marketplace because we're not giving it a chance. How can you ask people to be responsible in terms of how they use their health care dollars, how they steward their resources, if we won't tell them what the price is? It makes no sense. The bills are likely to run into opposition from health care providers and insurance companies. Coming up next, a former governor and current candidate for governor, Tim Pawlenty, will join me in studio. We'll talk about his decision to run again for the office and his top priorities if he's elected. Starting this week here on At Issue, we will be sitting down with each of the candidates running for governor of Minnesota. First up, Republican Tim Pawlenty. He, of course, is no stranger to the office, having served as governor from 2003 to 2011. Now he's hoping to get back into state politics after an eight-year break. Tim Pawlenty is joining us in studio today. And, Governor, thank you for being here. Appreciate I'm it. glad to be here, Tom. What drives you to seek another term in office eight years after you left the office? Well, a few things do. One is our t politics have become way too divided, way too toxic, and I think I have the experience and the courage and the strength to bring people together in good, 
get good stuff done for Minnesota. Two is, I think the people who are getting squeezed in this whole deal are the middle class, middle-income Minnesotans. Our wealthy folks are doing fine, and we've got pretty good social safety net programs in Minnesota. But if you talk to where the anxiety is in our state, it is a lot to do with the squeeze on the middle class. And I think I can address that and advance policies that are going to help a lot in that regard. Things were pretty toxic and divided when you were first elected back in 2002. Uh, do you wish you'd done anything differently back then? Uh, because it's been partisan for a long time. It is, both nationally in Minnesota, less so in Minnesota, but it continues to get worse. And you continue to have people spewing out venom. I'm going to do my part to try to focus on what's good for Minnesota, what's particularly good for middle-income Minnesotans. And again, I think I've got the strength and the courage to rise above some of the usual nonsense. So I think the answer to your question is clearly yes. Now, a lot has changed, of course, in eight years. For one thing, there's a lot of voters out there who have turned 18 since the last time you were in office. How do you introduce yourself to them and convince them that your vision of their future is what they're looking for? I think most Minnesotans, whether you were 18 some time ago or you're now, you know, 68 or in between, here's some of the bread and butter issues most Minnesotans care about. We need to hold down and slow down health care premiums. We need to make sure our schools and our educational system are preparing people for the economy of today and tomorrow. And we need to make sure as we lighten up the load economically and from a tax standpoint that we do so on the middle class first and foremost. So those are issues that everybody can care about regardless of age, regardless of subgroup politics, all that stuff. Those are the things that we're going to focus on in this campaign. And I'm sure as you expected, Democrats and even Governor Dayton, the current governor, have pointed out that when you left office, you left behind a big budget deficit, uh, high unemployment. Uh, just this week, Governor Dayton, in a newspaper interview, uh, called your record abysmal. And part of that was in response to what he perceived as criticism uh, that he thought you were pointing toward his record. Let's listen to what the governor had to say this week. Well, I'll certainly defend myself and defend my record from, you know, the distortions and the you know, just dishonest portrayal of, of it. Uh, I think the facts should speak for themselves. You know, 3.2 percent unemployment. I mean, that, that's a fact. Uh, 6.9 percent when I took office. And he went on to talk about the budget deficit. How do you defend your record? Well, first of all, there's a law in Minnesota that requires you can't have a budget deficit. Every governor, every time throughout all of Minnesota history, including me, balanced the budget. And we did every budget cycle in the state of Minnesota. So he's talking about a projected budget deficit. I inherited one when I became governor from Governor Ventura. I didn't run around like a crybaby. I just fixed it. And so you cannot have a, a budget that's imbalanced in the state. It's against the law. So we balanced it every budget cycle, every time when I was governor. Beyond that, I'm, you know, Governor Dayton and I are, have gotten along over the years, but it's an example of toxic politics, divided politics, and finger-pointing. I don't, I don't want to get into what he did versus what I did. I want to focus on the future and what we are going to solve problems for Minnesota. And, of course, you're going to face criticism for going off to Washington, D.C., uh, representing the financial services industry, uh, earning a lot of money, which I don't think anybody should necessarily have that held against them. But still, there are going to be critics uh, among the Democrats who are going to point to that. Uh, how do you respond to that? Well, I got offered a good job. I took it and I gained knowledge on critical issues like cybersecurity. And I think that knowledge and other issues, like every day a Minnesotan has to use a financial service product, a debit card, a credit card, a savings account, a checking account, insurance of various forms, IRAs, 401Ks, knowing about all of that is important to our economy in Minnesota. And by the way, that industry provides hundreds of thousands of good-paying jobs in our state. So that knowledge, I think, is actually going to be helpful to serving Minnesota. 
Now, another issue you're going to have to face, and this time not from Democrats, but from Republicans who are still not happy with uh, how you treated uh, now President Trump back when he was on the campaign trail, and you at one point called him unfit for office. As we all know now, he ended up getting uh, elected. But some of those Republicans who are staunchly in his corner uh, are going to have a hard time stomaching a Tim Polenik candidacy. How do you turn them? Well, what set me off with President Trump, I'm sure with many of your viewers and people all across Minnesota, were those Access Hollywood tapes where he made the comments that are now infamous. I didn't like those comments. My wife didn't like those comments. My daughter didn't like those comments, and neither did a lot of other people. So I spoke my mind. But since then, as president, I agree with most of his policy positions, not all of them. But most of them. And so I think he's done a reasonably good job in terms of his policy direction. I just don't like some of his language and some of his past behaviors. You've talked a lot in recent months and a lot of speeches you've given about the technological wave, the next tech wave that's coming, and, and how Minnesota needs to be prepared for that so we can ride the wave. Yet in Minnesota, day after day, including at the top of this broadcast, we talked about all the technical problems uh, with Minlars. Before that, it was Minsure. Uh, how, how do you plan to get Minnesota uh, on the right path to take advantage of the technological wave? People want accountability, and so you need to make sure this stuff works, the stuff we currently have and the stuff that's coming in the future. And you have way too many systems in the state of Minnesota that are off the rails. Minlars is a prime example, but there are others. For example, there was a recent legislative audit regarding whether the state even bothers to check or the systems are in place to check whether somebody's even eligible for various government programs, and they determined that there's hundreds of millions of dollars wasted because our state government doesn't bother to check or has bad systems to check people's eligibility for various government programs, including health care, which is, you know, those dollars are important and they could be reused for bringing down premiums for the middle class. And finally, do you plan to seek the endorsement uh, at the convention on June 1st uh, of the Republican Party, or you're planning to go straight to a primary? I'd be honored to have the endorsement. I'm a lifelong Republican. I've been endorsed tw twice before when I ran for statewide office. We're going to explore that, but I'm getting in the race late, and I'm getting in the race because I think the other candidates on the Republican side just aren't getting any traction, frankly, and they can't win in the general election. Uh, but we're, our campaign isn't going to stop with the endorsement. We'll, we'll explore it. We'd be honored to have it, but it doesn't stop there. So you're willing to go on to a primary regardless? Yeah, our campaign isn't going to stop with the endorsement. And do you have any news uh, to break on your fundraising so far? I know the reports are not necessarily due out until Monday, but how is fundraising going? Well. <laughs> Can you tell us how well? Uh, you know, it, fundraising is one piece of the puzzle. You know, the real question is, do you have the heart and mind and soul for public service? And you've got to go get support from voters and from people who believe in you. Uh, you'll see our numbers on Monday, and I think they'll affirm that our campaign's got good strength and momentum. And my final, final question, I know you're a big hockey fan, uh, the Wild going to beat the Winnipeg Jets in the playoffs. I hope so, Tom, but candidly, the Wild play heavy, and they got a lot of snipers. Our Wild play light, and we, but for stall, we don't have a lot of snipers, and so I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm, I will not be surprised if the Jets uh, roll them. All right, well, we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, former Governor Tim Pawlenty, now candidate Tim Pawlenty. Thanks for joining us. Happy to Appreciate do it. it. We'll have all of the candidates for governor on between now and the middle of May. Up next, we have Andy Brem and Brian Melendez. They're going to join me for political analysis. And later, an Olympic champion visits the state capitol. The major sporting event, Jesse Diggins, hopes to draw to Minnesota with some help from state lawmakers. A standing ovation at the state capitol for Olympic gold medalist Jesse Diggins. The Afton native was honored on the House floor for becoming the first U.S. athlete, man or woman, to win a gold medal in cross-country skiing. 
Diggins is also teaming up with state lawmakers to try and draw the Nordic World Cup Ski Championship to Minnesota. I want to make sure that every little kid who's starting skiing, all the high school athletes that I got to see just, you know, 10 minutes ago, I want them to have the chance to see the World Cup in person. The Nordic Ski World Cup will be held next in Austria in 2019. It was last held in the U.S. way back in 1950 at Lake Placid, New York. We are happy to be joined, however, by Adam Gaudet of Northeastern University and now the Vancouver Canucks. Please welcome Adam Gaudet. And speaking of winter sports, on this wintry weekend, I was off last week doing my volunteer duty on the Hobie Baker Committee. I hosted the Hobie Baker Awards Ceremony on the NHL Network, where we announced Adam Gaudet of Northeastern University as the winner of the 38th Hobie Baker Award. The ceremony took place during the NCAA Frozen Four last weekend. And it went from a frozen four to a frozen weekend. It just never seems to end here in Minnesota. Joining me now for political analysis, former state DFL party chair Brian Melendez and uh, Republican strategist Andy Brem. Thank you both uh, for being here. Uh, let's talk about uh, Governor Pelleni, former Governor Pelleni, who is now running for another term. Uh, Andy, are you going to be supporting his candidacy? Uh, I've been a supporter of his for a long time. I mean, I think we need, a, you know, an A-plus team, and, and Tim Pelleni's an A-plus candidate. He has experience to get things done. I think he's what we need right now to bring uh, the state together. So I've been an enthusiastic supporter for a long time. Please, he's in the race. Brian, many Democrats and even some Republicans, especially his Republican opponents, say he's a retread, and it's time to, to move on to someone new. Well, he's got great name recognition, so he goes in with that, but he's also got a record uh, and, and we heard Governor Dayton this week take a shot at that record, saying that it was abysmal. I think there's a lot to criticize him about in, in the way that he ran the state for eight years. So he's got pluses and minuses coming in, but, but uh, you know, at least we, we, we've seen him before and, and we know what we're getting for good or for bad. And he says he plans to go on to a primary, regardless of what happens with the endorsement battle. Uh, how hard fought of a primary do you think there could be, and how damaging could that be to whomever uh, emerges on the Republican side? You know, I'm never of the view that a contest is necessarily bad for the candidate. It's good to have a competition. I think we'll have that. We have other uh, qualified, good candidates in this in the race, so I don't think it's necessarily going to be a coronation for Tim Pawlenty. But ultimately, I think he will come out the victor. Uh, but again, I don't think that's a bad thing for our party to shake it up, have some debate, have but ultimately come together and support the nominee. And again, we're going to have all the candidates on here between now and the middle of May in advance of the June 1st conventions where they will be endorsing. Do you anticipate on the Democratic side there being a, a primary, or do you think they're going to endorse a candidate on June 1st and unite behind that candidate? Uh, I, I think it is likely that there's going to be an endorsement and that, and that the, there will not be a primary fight, but I don't think all the candidates have committed to that yet, so you just can't say for sure. All right. Well, it's going to be a very interesting summer on the campaign trail. No question about that. Let's talk about Minlars, since that's about all we heard about this week at the <laughs> legislature. And uh, Governor Dayton even uh, took a poke at Republicans, saying that uh, all they do is grandstand on Minlars and pound on the table and complain, but they don't come up with any solutions. Is that valid criticism? Well, I don't think they don't want to pour more money at a bad problem, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But again, I mean, this is government at its worst. The numbers that people are throwing out on wasted taxpayers' money is totally unacceptable. I mean, putting together a functioning website like this shouldn't be difficult. It's done in the private sector all the time, yet state government finds a way to do it at astronomical costs with total inefficiency. So anyone, you know, this is a great example of government, big government uh, gone awry. And then there was the dust-up over $1.3 million that usually is used for highway construction being diverted to hiring call center workers. Is that going to be a problem? 
uh, I, I think that has probably blown over. And, and, and compared to the size, of the, the size of the fix that needs to happen, $1.3 is a drop in the bucket. The real question is going to be, are we gonna, is there going to be accountability for whatever the next round of expenditures is? And are we finally going to get the results that we thought we'd already paid for? All right. And speaking of results, let's uh, turn our attention back to the campaign and look at some fundraising totals that have come in. Let's start with the uh, U.S. Senate race between Tina Smith and Karen Housley. You can see that Tina Smith has an advantage there. Of course, she isn't uh, kind of an incumbent. She was appointed to the office, but she has a fundraising advantage. But, uh, Andy, what do you make of these numbers? Well, I don't think there's anything surprising. I mean, Tina Smith is an incumbent U.S. senator. Uh, she's been involved in statewide politics for a long time, so she's got a lot of friends with a lot of money, and, you know, I'm not... I, Kudos to her for doing well, but as this race heats up, I think we're going to see it equal out. Those numbers are likely to rise exponentially. Uh, yes, and it's still very early days. I don't think you can draw any conclusions from those numbers quite yet. If they stay on those paces through the election, then Tina Smith has clearly got, got some fairly clear sailing, but I don't know that you can assume that. And final question for Andy. Let's take a look at Tim Wall's uh, fundraising. We've just got a few of these that have trickled in. More will be coming out Monday. You see how much he has raised. Governor Pawlenty would not reveal his number, but he said he's doing well. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised. I, I know a lot of people are excited about his candidacy, excited to put money behind him. Tim Wall's number is pretty, pretty low for an incumbent congressman who's the likely nominee. All right. Well, we'll find out more on Monday about those fundraising totals. Brian and Andy, thanks for being here. Up next, a bizarre discovery in the old downtown Dayton's building. What Governor Dayton remembers about a wilder time at the department store. That bizarre story about a mummified monkey found in the old Dayton's building still has a lot of people talking, including Governor Dayton. Workers restoring the building on Nicollet Mall found remains of a monkey in an air duct that might date back several decades. The governor has humorous memories of monkeys in a display at the store when he worked there in the summer of 1968. They had a, a you know, set these exhibits up on the eighth floor to get people to come up and shop on the way up, shop on the way down. So they had this rainforest and big knitting and they had these monkeys and then they had these chirping birds. <laughs> and some of you didn't figure out that the monkeys were carnivores. <laughs> and I won't get into graphic detail in, in front of the cameras here. Suffice it to say, they had to put up a net to separate the monkeys from the birds after, well, you know what happened. Dayton also recalled that one of the monkeys escaped into an air duct so that might solve the mystery, but who knows? Well, you can listen to episodes of At Issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have links posted at KSTP.com. And that is all the time we have for now. We hope to see you back here again next week for another edition of At Issue.